Are we going to do a show or are we going to do a show? Hello and welcome to another episode of Sounds from the 70s with Gary and Rob, sometimes known as Shuggy Two Shits. Shuggy Two Shits. Bringing back Shuggy on popular request from Rob and may not see or hear from him again but he wanted to do it (laughs) and we are coming (laughs) man you just ruined you ruined my show you always just ruined my show don't eat the chicken (laughs) and we are coming to you uh for now in a shack somewhere in the woods near the appalachian mountains but we will be moving in about a month or so to a place that isn't a shack so <laughs> that's all we can wow. say for the moment is that it isn't a shack. It's maybe a slightly bigger shack. Uh, now, it's still not in the metropolis. Are you looking at me? What are you looking at? Oh, I'm looking at uh, something off in the distance. Oh, Christ. So now it's still not in the metropolis area. We have to drive a little bit to get out there. It's way out in the burbs. Yes, and Rob's oh, going to beyond the burbs. Rob is going to contribute, even though I haven't asked him because it's not. Yeah. I'm not asking him. I'm telling him he's contributing fifty percent of the gas to for the new location. Unless I can find us a better new location in the uh, devil's basement. <laughs> but oh man, you just kill audiences. You just you're just like an audience killer. The devil's uh, basement. The <laughs> <laughs> devil must have a house. Because, the devil must have a basement. Because you say it different doesn't make it better. <laughs> so, But we were promised it has some sort of heating in the winter, uh, which is better <clears throat> than this shack uh, that doesn't have any heating uh, at any time. Yep. And uh, we don't, you know, in the shack, we don't even know who owns this shack. They just uh, tell us to record here between 8 and 10 o'clock at night and that we don't disturb the pigs in the pen which we don't except that the one time when we got drunk and rob was hungry (laughs) pigs are hard (laughs) pigs are hard to catch let me tell you but when you do catch them they're yummy (laughs) unless you're jewish stay away um yeah we got a new place that we're going to now there shouldn't be any missed shows or anything like that it, this should go fairly smooth or civil it's, moves, it's really. not like uh, the last time where the whole crew moved at the same date <laughs> and that was not just all of us moving at once it was three guys moving differently at several times <laughs> it was three guys moving <laughs> to different locations and a different studio so it was actually kind of four moves mm-hmm. it was crazy and the odds of that happening, seriously, are like 600 trillion to one that all of these moves would happen on the same day. It's like the planets lined up and they'll never line up again. So, but if there is some sort of delay, which there shouldn't be, we will let you know somehow. And it should go very uh, copacetic, as they say. Do they say you still say I don't copacetic? think they say copacetic and I don't think they say tubular anymore. Things going tubular. Tubular. <laughs> I never really heard that before. <laughs> Bart Simpson used to say it a lot. Oh, well, that's uh, that's after my time. I'm more of a copacetic type of 70s person. So. Copacetic. Yeah. That's like antiseptic. Anyway. Oh, fuck. 
Here we are. Oh, did I tell you how <laughs> tired I am today? You did. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta tell you my day. Usually, I ask you how Rob's week or day is, and and he tells you. Yeah, I guess he tells nothing. you. I don't listen. Is it the blather? I'm drinking water. <laughs> but today I had to I had to wait for the the tow truck, and then I had to wait like ten minutes at Rob's place because Rob didn't come out for some reason. I no, guess no. I was like, uh, you know, I'm getting a ride with Gary, and I'm just gonna sit inside and make him wait. And so I had to wait so for that, funny. and then it was pouring rain, pouring rain. Then we drove to the studio. Studio is locked. It's never locked. Never locked. And today it's locked, and we had to Why wait outside it? until we got the code. Somebody had to text us the code. Uh, and uh, well, we got started an hour late. And the, the chicken that we had before the show made me sleepy. Oh, it was good chicken. It was good chicken. It was very good. Chicken. So it's been a hellish kind of day. Even the chicken, even though it was good, <laughs> it was good, but it was hell chicken. It was hell chicken. Hell chicken has a curse, a price. So I know that because I'm talking about our day, which isn't important to you people, that you've already turned to the gardening station. But I'm telling you, the show we have today is so spectacular. It makes it all worthwhile. No, no. <laughs> but what it does do is cover up for the uh, inadequacies of this part of the show. And I've decided that I'm not going to do that thing. the... Uh, because it would take too long. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I'm always three words ahead of you. Saturday. Uh, we're not going to do the segment today that I was going to Same. do, which is a great segment. We're going to do it next week because, for one, I'm tired. And it's a real kind of deep segment. No, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not into it because we got a lot to talk about in our album today. And you know what? That needs to be said right now because we haven't said what album. We, I, I was, we were talking about Nig and Nang and Ying and Yang, yeah, and, and we have not talked about the album. Today we start our annual, and it's not annual. <laughs> I wrote annual, and then I, I remembered last night that we've never done this part before because I was <laughs> thinking, uh, what albums did we review last year from 1972 from the Beatles? And we didn't do any from 1972 because already, we already had done them before. So this is our first time. I keep on thinking that we did it last year. But this is the first of the annual. This is the first of an annual thing we will be doing every year where we look at where the Beatles were 50 years ago on the day we do the show, which of course would be 1973. So yeah. we will see where the four solo Beatles were Musically in 1973, and maybe privately, maybe we'll go into those bedrooms and see what what was what was shaking, what was really happening, what was there. Ringo really doing, okay. what deals were going down. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> so, anyways, <laughs> and we will be reviewing records from all four solo Beatles, except we already reviewed Ringo Starr's 1973 album Ringo on an earlier show. One of our first shows, actually. Shall we turf Ringo? So we will pick another Ringo album to review, uh, an earlier album, uh, because we like to review. Uh, we like to review before this show finishes completely all the solo Beatles. Albums. You want to keep it balanced. So to keep it balanced and not have not have Ringo mad because and then phone me. I hate when Ringo phones me late at night and says, "Hey, like you did the other three guys and you let me out." And I said, we, "But we already did your album." And he's hard to reason with. Yeah. You have to. You try and explain things to him, and he's and he's like gives you that Liverpoolian accent, and then and then starts swearing, calls you a scouse. You know what Liver a scouse is? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. It's like uh, and it uh, attaches to uh, fish and. Uh, <laughs> 
case. Pulls their skills Anyways. off. <laughs> Scouse. It's, it's hard, people. It really is. This show is not easy to do with Rob. It is not. How did you get me? <laughs> oh, yeah, I saved your life once back in, uh, in the 60s. <laughs> this week, we will be reviewing an album released almost 50 years to the day. This album was released. We are taping this. We are taping this show, and I'm not going to say when, but you'll get it when I say that uh, this album was released in late April, early May of 1973. So it's very close to 50 years exactly, and that is Paul McCartney and Wings' album uh, "Red Rose Speedway," originally called "Up Your Arse, You Wanker." <laughs> But the record company said no. The record company said, Paul, you better change that. Record companies are sticks in the mud. (laughs) Don't you forget it. Uh, Actually, it wasn't called that. That was just a joke. That was a joke. Red Rose Speedway, and we're going to get to that uh, very soon. But speaking of wankers. Wankers. Hey, Rob, how was your week? It was a good week. I have little memory of any events that took place. Uh, I'm supposed to mow the lawn sometime, but it's been raining so much, I just said. Uh, yeah, we've had a lot of rain here, by the way. A lot of rain in the past couple of days, but then uh, last week there was a big heat wave, and next week there's going to be a big heat wave, and I... Uh, yeah, it's going to get hot I, next week. I, I personally blame the weather. And yet, when I drove to pick up Rob today, I hate to interrupt your your spiel, because I usually like to ignore it and drink my water, Yeah. but yeah. there was like flooding when I went to go pick up Rob. It was really bad. And then, like, the weather here in, in where we are, Once we like, it changes shack. so fast. The next day, it's, like, so hot you can't even, you know, breathe. The shack's a funny place. And the shack is a funny place and not for reasons you want to know. People. Yeah, it's just it follows different, yeah, different rules. Can you squeal like a piggy? <laughs> <laughs> that think, kind of funny place. I think the hunters process their, their, their moose meat here. <laughs> See, we don't have to deal with that anymore. In one more month, we won't have to be dealing with any of that... Uh, you could you, you squeal big? <laughs> no, we'll have a better class of hillbillies. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't, don't do think that. I want to do that, but then I have a lot of time on my hands if I don't do it. Let's just talk about the album, be done with it, and go. <laughs> okay, it's going to be a short show today. But I do want to mention something. Well, we'll put this on odds and ends, even though I didn't write this in for odds and ends. Uh, odds and uh, ends, uh, last time, it's not found again. Not found again. On this odds and ends, I just want to bring up something that I've been trying to get on here, but I'm trying to shorten the shows. So if I would have put this on and the other thing, yeah, then that would have made it really long. So I'm just going to do the little odds and ends. And it was actually something that I saw on YouTube and it absolutely stunned me. And I must have seen that sometime when I was young, but I don't remember but they had they had one of those things that Rob I, I always tell you about where the guy watches something from way far back and he critiques it you know like a drum solo or something. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. Well, this guy he was watching, and I don't know how this came up in my list of YouTube things. Maybe because I pick music stuff all the time. I don't know, but it came up. Uh, he was going to critique a guy he had never heard of by the name. Of Roy Clark, who we all know from Hee Haw and everything. Now, before I talk about it, I would really like everybody who listens to this show to put up that clip 
from what I'm talking about, which is Roy Clark guested on The Odd Couple with uh, uh, Oscar uh, Madison and... <laughs> no, not with um, now I got Jackie Gleason in my head. Jack. Klugman. Oh, I'm so tired. Uh, yeah, Jack Klugman and uh, Jack Klugman uh, and Tony Randall. Tony Randall. Which is how we grew up with the Odd Couple, and I think they're the perfect Odd Couple because you know Tony Randall has like Felix Unger's name completely right. <laughs> and when you think of Jack Klugman, you think of Oscar Madison as being the yep. sloppy guy and loudmouth. And it was such a funny show. Anyway, hope we don't have to pay any royalties just because we did that. But anyways, um, no, it was too awful. Roy Clark made an appearance on it. I guess I don't remember this, although I I watched every. They they had it repeating all the time in the seventies. I remember as a kid, I watched it. It was a good show. It was a funny show, and Roy Clark I guess made an appearance on it. So this guy was critiquing Roy Clark, who he had never heard of. Now, I remember Roy Clark from the occasional appearance on The Tonight Show where he would be on the guitar. Just oh, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the Donnie Marie show. Was and the Donnie Marie yeah. show. And, of course, Hee Haw. And, um, and uh, we all, I think people like us in the know know that, that Roy Clark is an amazing guitar player. But this episode, and this is a TV episode, and it's taped live in front of an audience. And I, you people have to watch this episode. It's only like, we not the episode, insist. We do. I sincerely do. It's three minutes long. And what he does, he's sitting on the couch at, at, in, in Oscar and Felix's place. And they want him to play a number. And so Roy Clark plays one of the most stunning things I have ever seen on television. And the person who was watching it, probably a guy in his early 30s, I don't know, middle 30s was totally freaking stunned and the things he did I can't talk about them they were crazy they involved cats oh I'll make fun of it it was it was <laughs> it was it was even to this day even 10 20 30 40 50 years later it it was it, it I can't explain it it was just he started off playing first he was being critical which was funny because he was playing these spanish chords and he was going well that's simple he's just moving his hands he was going like i've done that i've done that i did that one of my songs where you just move a you, a finger here and it sounds very spanish very and it, you know and then he started to go and he was picking this and it's acoustic guitar it's not electric and he's picking the guitar and he's moving like lightning fast, like Eddie Van Halen fast, except without the tricks, you know? Yeah. And it was spellbinding. And the guy's got his mouth open, just like I was when I was watching it. And then he moves into banging the strings, but making a sound, like making, like, like advancing the song. And then he did something else, which I can't remember because it was so, I'm stunned by this point. And then, I can't remember, then he moves into another part of this instrumental. And he said, he's even keeping rhythm, <laughs> which he is. He's keeping rhythm on the bass strings while he's doing all this other shit. And it's not overdubbed. He made, it, he made a point because it's not. It's taped in front of a live audience. And you can't, back in those days, you just couldn't like 
have six guitars playing it. You just you just had him. No. They taped it and then they put it on the air. It was one. He said it too. It was one of the most amazing things he's ever seen on TV, as far as playing the guitar is concerned. And I agree. I was stunned. Rory Clark has to be some sort of guitar god. And that's what he said. And he even said this, and he was checking this Rory Clark, because <laughs> he'd never <laughs> seen him before. I think he was British, this guy. I can't remember. But he goes, he is one of the greatest things I've ever seen. Sometimes, and Glenn Campbell reminds me of that. Glenn Campbell, everybody thinks of as being the legend that he is, but his guitar playing was stunning. And the unfortunate thing I think about Roy Clark is that he got saddled with this acting thing and with being funny and people, and he kind of, and an entertainer, an all-around entertainer, when, when he should have been actually a guitar, and movies, and I mean, he did all this stuff. He was more of an entertainer. He had the hee-haw thing and making people laugh. But I'm telling you, he sang well, and, but he is one of the greatest guitar players I've ever seen, and he never gets considered as one of the great guitar players. And I think that's because of his shtick of, of being an all-around Oh, yeah. And only... Not only, just being a guitar player. Yes, only showing a part of it in his in his shows. And, and then, he get, you know, play Las Vegas and these places that hip people wouldn't see him in. And uh, I'm telling you, you have to watch it. I'm begging you people. It was... It was so uh, astounding. And I was so lucky to be able to have, to have that come up on my front page of things to watch. And uh, I almost never miss anything that Roy Clark does as far as guitar. Because it's always like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know a human being can do that. I did not know <laughs> that a human being could actually play the guitar like that. But also... Not just technically, but then to be able to do things that you don't notice, like in, like, in my mind. like he said cupping. He was going like he was cupping that, and I said that's so hard to do to cup the sound of the guitar while he's playing really fast or whatever he was doing because he was doing so many things, and I was going yeah the subtle things he's doing on top of the more extroverted things he was doing was like holy smokes, and I had to watch it twice. And I was just as dumbfounded the second time as the first. And then I said, I can't watch this anymore because it makes me feel like I'm the worst guitarist <laughs> ever. <laughs> but I had to bring that up. It was, and I must have seen it when I was small, but it didn't make much impression yeah, on me. because you I didn't wasn't... know what was involved in guitar exactly. playing. Exactly. You would have seen it and thought, oh, that's just natural guitar players. I wish, I wish it was more funny. <laughs> uh, why didn't they make me laugh oh and then you see because it's done live in front of a studio audience as they say back then you can see um, I always want to call him Felix and Oscar but you can see Jack Klugman and Tony Randall like just like wow <laughs> like they were like because occasionally they would pan to their faces and and they're actually seeing it, and who knows if 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 they even re if he even rehearsed it, or he just said, "Give me three minutes and I'll do it." Because they were like, "Fuck, man!" You could just tell by their faces they were like, and to give <laughs> to give, and this was like, um, yeah, this was shows a, in the seventies to give show three minutes. Normally uh, had musical guests. Yes, didn't have not have musical guests, and to give three and a half minutes to Roy Clark playing the guitar, which is an eternity in TV time. It mm. really is. 
is astounding. Unless, unless the writers uh, were kind of sloughing it that week. We got three minutes to fill. Let's get Roy Clark. That's, that's, when, that's also when uh, they had a lot of time on their hands because they had a really rough week of drinking. And then they'd go, let's do one of the flashback episodes. <laughs> which is the worst episodes of any series. But every series had them. It's like, Remember we got to do that time 20... we did this? Yeah. We got I remember like... the Happy Days one. And they're all sitting in the living room. All of them all oh, gathered Oh, yeah. Around. There were so many like that. And you you'd go like, oh, man, we got 24 shows and... One of them has got to be a flashback show because that's a lot of shows, and it is. That's crazy that they did that many shows. But there'd always be, Rob's right, there'd always be like they'd be sitting around, remember that time? And then there'd be a... <laughs> South Park did episode like that. <laughs> that was or, a sticky situation. Or they'd go, hey, Fonz, you're acting just like that time you fell off the motorbike and Remember that? <laughs> 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 I swear to God, they're all the same. They like they didn't even bother to try and make no. each show different with it's, their it's like, flashbacks. It's like uh, the first time they did it, uh, other writers just saw it and said, "Hey, we can do that too." <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll put them, everybody in the cast, in the living room, and then we'll go. <laughs> is, is anyone even asking themselves, "Is this a good idea?" <laughs> no one is. You know what? When you're taking up 24, 26 shows a year, yeah. there's going to be some stinkers. I guess there'll be some filler in there. Let's just say that they don't do flashback shows anymore, and they haven't done it for a long, long time. <laughs> and there's a reason. Because they're stinkers, and they're just, they're, they're what you call the filler of At TV this shows. Point, the audience knows that you're being lazy. Yeah, you're just, I don't know about lazy, there. but you're you're just filling it up because... I got to do 26 shows, man. Give us a break. <laughs> it is being lazy, but not in the sense that if you're only doing 13 shows and you do something like that, that's pretty poor. But man, they did a lot of shows back then. Holy smokes. And worse than the 60s. In the 60s, they would do 32, 34 shows a year. And here the Britain, in Britain, they're still doing like eight shows. Six to eight. 34 two shows compared to eight to six to eight <laughs> shows in Britain and yet uh, sure the Britain knows. was always smarter because they got the best they got the best out of what they could for that season and then it ended whereas there was a contractual obligation for every show in the in North America to have like 34 shows and there'd be so many ones with that were just stinkers yeah there was uh, some misses along with the hits because you just can't stay that consistent that long. Well, not with Gilligan's Island. It was always hit, hit, hit. <laughs> <laughs> Gilligan's Island. They knew what they were doing. That was, that was a heck of a premise. That was a they premise. knew what they were doing. You got, you got chicks and you got guys and you got stranded on an island. What do you do? <laughs> you know what to do, okay? Let's go do it. <laughs> we're not even going to write this. You just you just know what to do. We don't know what we're gonna put on a little uh, jungle boy in there. Uh, he's gonna look like Kurt Russell because he is, and uh, <laughs> and they can't be building stuff out of like uh, steel or plastic. They gotta use coconuts, coconuts and bamboo. You gotta really love coconuts, okay? <laughs> so we got off the topic a little bit there. I did. tell you, and we're gonna have a short show, right? I hope so. No, and I don't. I probably we, not. We and I don't mean right. that in derogative, derogative form, but I don't want it to be a long show. And we are deliberately trying to cut things out so that it's a 50 to at the 50 to 60 at most. 
And yeah. today, if I would have done exactly what I was going to do, yeah. which is a very complicated, we like a new record, completed, uh, complicated segment, we would have gone over. And I didn't want to do that. I don't want to do that anymore. So uh, that's why the stuff beforehand is getting is getting cut down a little bit. The segment <laughs> where we do the albums never gets cut down. But just I was putting too much stuff in there. I would see something. I say I'm gonna put that in, and yeah. I'll squeeze it in with the segment we're doing. And it was stupid because I knew it would make the show long. So I'm just being smart. Yeah, no, you want to pack as much in, but it did take us about 100 or so episodes to to fully realize that. No, 160. Yeah. <laughs> it took 160 episodes to realize maybe we're going over time too much. <laughs> we tried everything. <laughs> we haven't tried cutting back on the stuff. Really, the. Um, the broke the the the, straw the thing that the, the straw that broke the camel's back was the two episodes we did with Harry Chapin and uh, the other folk person. That guy, uh, he's in my. Uh, I'll rustle some papers here. <laughs> and, uh, wasn't there, right before Harry Chapin, Taylor and Jim Croce. Jim Croce. Both shows were unbelievably long, and uh, that was the one where I said, "That's enough. This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. I had too much stuff in there, and we're not doing that again." What's wrong and, with us? Uh, just to explain why uh, that we're trying to make this a more accessible show for our fans. We could do this for two hours easily, but we want people to hear the two hours. We don't want people shutting it off at a certain amount of time. Yeah, I think our two, three-hour shows are still in the future. In the future. Yeah. Maybe not our future. No. <laughs> Some of the people who future. take over for us. <laughs> They're going to uh, make AI uh, copies of us and just use all our stuff. Future Gary and Future Monkey. <laughs> Damn it. I've been replaced once again. <laughs> Even in the future, there'll be a monkey. So today we are looking at the uh, Paul McCartney and Wings album, Red Rose Speedway. I got a lot to say. This is a, this is a personal album to me. Plus there's a lot of uh, interesting stuff I want to say about this album. Uh, Red Rose Speedway was released 50 years ago in uh, early May 1973. Uh, wasn't it, Rob? Uh, I thought it was April. Now, what the, what do you remember about this album when it was like first released? I'm sure it was April. You say May? Late April. Sorry, late April. Okay. Early May. Late April in like the UK, and I think the first week of May. I remember. I remember US. when it was released. It was raining. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> See, I put you on the spot, and you got out of it. That's I was very good. Five, six. That's years old. very good. See, you're a pro. You're a pro, man. Um. Now. This is, we're not going to obviously go into any um, deep biography of Paul McCartney. Because if you don't know, you know who Paul McCartney, Paul, Paul McCartney is, you know him. Don't pretend you don't know him. Then you shouldn't be listening to this show. <laughs> you should be listening to the Gardening Channel. Uh, but this is the second album by the band that he formed Wings with his wife Linda and uh, Denny Sywell on uh, drums. And uh, for... This album, first time on this album, Henry McCulloch on lead guitar, and of course, uh, Denny Lane on second guitar and anything else that needs to be played, while Paul is on whatever instrument he wants. And it's interesting because uh, in 19, late 1971, early 1972, they released the Wings Wildlife album, which did really bad and got really bad reviews. We reviewed that album on here. Uh, we said, I think we pretty much said that uh, 
there was a lot of bad things about it, but it was quite interesting. They were doing the, uh, they were experimenting. Yes, and, uh, and we liked that. It was an interesting album. Yeah. We we knew the faults and we 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 said it, but also it was very interesting. Um, but it didn't do well. There are differences. It's so funny because there are differences right away with this album because that album failed. One is on the Wildlife album, you got uh, the whole band on the cover. And then you got a drawing on the back. Right away on Red Rose Speedway, you got just Paul on the front cover and no band on the front or back cover. The back cover, it's just a picture of uh, a, a spotlighted music stand with a bouquet of roses on it. So right away, it's like the record company says, we don't want the band on, on there. We want to know that this is a Paul McCartney record. Hence, the album also being called Paul McCartney and Wings because they felt that people didn't buy maybe Wildlife because it just said Wings. They didn't know Paul was there. And they didn't know Paul was there, even though he's, yeah. right, he's right on front of the uh, cover with, his, yeah, with the rest that's, of the band. That's, that's, they're making some Now, another funny thing about, uh, about the record company, record companies are funny, uh, was that even though it had Paul's picture right in front with a rose in his mouth, they said, doesn't have the, t the group on it, the title. Just has Red Rose Speedway. It doesn't have the, who's does it? They thought because he had a fucking rose in his mouth, they wouldn't that recognize. they wouldn't recognize one of the most famous men in the world. Uh, so uh, for the first issues, they actually put a sticker on top, which would say Paul McCartney and Wings, and then have these song titles you know those little stickers they put on which is such bullshit because who doesn't know it's 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 Paul I mean, really who doesn't they, they sometimes don't staff with the best and brightest no no also interesting this, this is more of a fascinating story than the actual album is but they were supposed to this Paul wanted a double album uh, he actually wanted he had enough material for uh, two records set which they went in to record and then the record company, which was EMI Records, I guess we should say what the record company was, which was EMI. EMI. Said, no, we're going to EMI. See, don't get me sidetracked. Oh, <laughs> they piss off a lot of people. Yeah. It was, EMI wanted, said, no, we're going to condense this into a single LP. Uh, we believe that the material is not of sufficiently high standard. Sorry, Paul, you're not that good. And we're qualified to judge. And we are also mindful of the modest sales of wildlife and uh, and your first two wing singles, which did... Actually, they were right. <laughs> they were right. Uh, the material was not of sufficiently high standard to warrant a single LP, let <laughs> a double LP. So, so they said, you know, uh, no, like we've heard... We've heard like your rough mixes, and this is this. Let's make it a single and hope we get out of here alive. And uh, of course, uh, you know, Paul was a little bit, uh, and the band members were a little bit uh, chaffed by that a little bit. Now, um, the, this record was made uh, pretty much from the start of 1972 all the way to the. Uh, like October, November, uh, blah, 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 recorded here and there. They're also playing live in universities and stuff. Um, what was I going to say, Rob? Oh, I was going to say, like, uh, what you thought of the recording process while they were doing this album. 
I thought the repouring process they were doing uh, was uh, uh, too lengthy. <laughs> I had to get a drink of water. So when I have to get a drink of water, I always ask Rob a question he doesn't know how to answer, and it buys me time. And I think that my time answering this question was not lengthy enough. Now this is interesting, because sessions were held at Olympic Sound Studios in London. <laughs> Get this story. There's so many stories about this album that makes me laugh. It really does. Now, Glyn Johns was the, uh, the, was the producer at the start. And Glyn Johns, of course, is legendary for working with everybody. The Beatles, the Stones, blah, 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 the Who, everybody. He is one of the greatest engineer producers that England has ever produced. Just to let you know if you don't know who Glenn Johns is. So at the first session, <laughs> Paul asks him, very first session, he, Paul says to Glenn Johns, he thinks, you know, you have got to treat me just like the bass player in the band rather than as Paul McCartney, just as the bass guy, that's all. But then Paul got mad <laughs> when Glenn Johns treated him as just another musician in the band. <laughs> Oh, when Paul got a dose of his own medicine by saying, treat me just like another member of the band. And then Glenn John says, okay, you're another fucking member of the band. He was like, no. <laughs> That's not what I meant. Just another member of the band, but the most important other member of the band. <laughs> then things got worse because John's thought that Wings were not a genuine band and not of the caliber of artist he usually worked with. So... <laughs> So he'd be reading a newspaper in the control room at Olympic Studios as the group like smoked their marijuana and endlessly jammed <laughs> in the studio. And uh, let's just say they had a disagreement about a month and a half into recording and uh, Glenn Johns left. And they have since resolved their differences, obviously, because Glenn Johns worked on the Let It Be box set that was released two years ago and everything but uh, there was a time when you know uh, that they had uh, some differences because of this album you know because Glenn John's like left he said fuck this he there's a great again a great funny story here I'm going to tell you I'm going to find it um, just give me a second Rob what was that story you were telling me about this album I was telling you that uh, I, I first heard it, I was, where is this Red Rose Speedway? <laughs> what do they race there? Do they race roses? I'm, I'm my own worst enemy because I'm just pissing people <laughs> off by doing that. And I apologize, but I'm just trying to find this. That really degrades the quality of the show, you know. I know. It, I just realized that. No, I did. I just realized that. And I said, stop doing that. That I don't, turns people off. I know. So it Makes uh, them crazy mad. So one evening, I got to tell this, one evening, according to Glenn Johns, Linda McCartney and Denny Lane berated him for his lack of interest in the recording. To which Johns responded that they were deceiving themselves if they thought that by simply being in a band with Paul McCartney meant that the music they made was worth recording. <laughs> <laughs> he told them it was quote unquote shite, <laughs> as the English say. And I thought that was so funny. God, I laughed and I read that. You guys are making shite, and I'm supposed to sit here and record it. So that's I've, pretty much why Glenn Johns left. <laughs> I've, I've heard that from some of the engineers I've worked with. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, anyways, recording continued. They did not. They recorded for two albums, but uh, EMI refused to uh, release it. 
And so I'm going to read you some of the some of the some of the stuff said about this record. But before I do that, let me get about the personal thing because this is actually one of the first things I ever bought. Um, so I've heard this album a zillion times. Yes, I have. I bought this album, and I'm thinking late '77, early '78, and I was so anxious to buy anything. I was didn't have hardly a collection at all of of music yet. I, I remember, as I told you, the album that changed my life was the White Album. I got that for my birthday in '77. That changed my life completely, and it was all about music. And then the next two albums I remember buying, of course, were Beatles albums. Was the album that was re- new at the time, which was the Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl, I bought. And I also bought at the same time the Hey Jude uh, album, which not too many people know about anymore because it was a compilation album right after they had broken up. It's a great, really great album, but it wasn't released with their on CD and stuff like that. Anyways, so uh, I was mainly buying like Beatles and Paul McCartney stuff. And I just, you know, every time I had enough money, I wanted to buy it because I just, I just was like a sponge and I wanted to hear as much music as possible. It was like an obsession. And so I didn't know much about this, this album at all, but I had seen it. And, and this is what happened. I said this before when I was looking for Led Zeppelin 4 and stuff like that, that if I didn't find it on album, I bought it on A-Track, which was a mistake, but I, I couldn't wait. I just couldn't wait for an album, like. Uh, which was a shame because Paul McCartney's albums were chock full of goodies when you bought them. And especially this one because they had actually planned the album around a two-album set. They made a wicked album cover. They made a wicked like fold-out album cover with a booklet and all that shit. And, and although I don't know, I'm 11 years old. I can't believe I'm 11 years old and buying records. Like I, like I actually know what I'm doing, which in a way I did. Yeah, I mean, you'd heard of these Beatles guys. And yeah, you get them and all. I actually knew these types of albums, like Red Rose Street. Oh, I don't know what, but I would learn really quickly. And uh, so I got this. I saw it, and it, it looked interesting. I kind of thought it was a live album because it had Speedway on it. <laughs> well, maybe they're playing, playing it as Speedway. Oh, whatever. And anyways, I bought it. It was one of the first things I ever bought, uh, right up there, I think, in the top five or six rec- things I ever bought on an A-track. Played it endlessly, played it over and over again because I had nothing else to listen to, and I liked it at the time. Um, so that's I have very fond memories of this. I just wish I had more patience because I would have bought the albums with all the, the great stuff in it and everything. But uh, at the time, you know, actually... Eight tracks were even more cool as far as how they played than than records because you could play them in the car and stuff like that. They were new, yeah. Anyways, this album it, it is very sentimental to me, uh, but that doesn't change how I'm going to review the album, which we'll discuss in a bit. I want to just before I, we do review the album again. It's getting to be a long show. I haven't done anything yet. We haven't even reviewed it. <laughs> we yet. get carried yeah. away. <laughs> Okay, here are some of what the critics thought. And uh, I got to say these because uh, it made me laugh. Uh, Many of whom dismissed uh, the songs of the album as mediocre. According to author and critic Bob Wolfenden, which I like that name, Wolfenden, writing in 1991, the uh, the album was an example of uh, McCartney continuing to exasperate his audience. Now, I'm going to say almost all of these comments, to some degree, I agree with. 
good and bad. Uh, they each make a point. It's a very complicated album. It's a very simple album. But when you think about it and the, the device, the diverse emotions that it brings off, uh, there are points made all over the place. And actually, all of them are really good if you think about them. But of course, you have to listen to them. John Pigeon of, uh, again, a great John name. Pigeon. Of the great late rock and roll magazine, Let It Rock. Was he a single pigeon? <laughs> Please continue. Yeah, I, I would like to. Found found the uh, side to medley typical of McCartney's lazy attitude to songwriting and said, Red Road Speedway sounds as if it was written after a big T in front of the fire with carpet slippered feet up. Listening to it takes about as much energy as going 10 rounds with a marshmallow fairy. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting, interesting choice of words. That made me laugh for like five minutes when I read it. Because in the 70s, critics were fucking harsh. They, they, and I love that because they could also praise you as being like the savior's rock and roll. And they could also... They weren't concerned about offending. They weren't concerned about either lavishing too much praise on you or putting you in the dirt. They didn't care who you were. Nowadays, all the reviews are very in the middle. Like, oh, I don't... Like it had too much, and it had some bad. Yeah, exactly. Game. Everybody wins. Exactly. Really. Exactly. Um, Pigeon. Uh, Village Voice uh, critic Robert Criscow derided McCartney's reliance on aimless whimsy, and described the work as quite possibly the worst album ever made by a rock and roller of the first rank. It's not. But I, you know, that's that's some of the, the the Beatles just brought up so emotions. Like if you didn't do what you wanted them to do, he and it didn't do. matter which one of them it was, you could be subject to some. And Paul was definitely before Band on the Run was released, which was the next album which we reviewed, um, and it's actually my favorite. I said this on the show. It's my favorite ex Beatle album of all time. Um, they could be merciless because they expect you to be what they want you to be because you're an ex-Beatle. And they were really hard on Paul because they felt at the time that Paul had broken up the Beatles, which actually he didn't. That came out later that he did not, but they were really hard on him. Uh, McCartney himself in 1977 uh, said that it, it always takes a few months for me to listen to an album as a whole after its release. He said in the case of Red Rose Speedway, he said he couldn't stand to listen to it at all. Um, I'm just going to read a couple more of these. Uh, Joe, Joe Stevens, the Wings turf photographer in the early 1970s, recalled that I thought Red Rose was a disaster and so did everyone connected with it, except Paul. <laughs> um... I mean, I don't agree with statements like that. But, you know, I agree with uh, the statements about the uh, the content of the music, about uh, which I'm going to get to right now. Uh, uh, Record World called actually the best effort yet from Paul since he left the Beatles and said that Paul creates the kind of melodic and lilting music that stays with the listener and the lyrics reflect empathetic innocence, which I totally agree with. Whether you like the music or not, that's exactly a very good definition Stays of Stays with the listener. That's a fact. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Um, 
Front, uh, Lenny, uh, not Lenny K. Michael Frontani uh, wrote that while McCartney's music would continue to be criticized by some commentators as vacuous and facile, uh, Lenny K's review in Rolling Stone appears to mark the point where art of consequence was no longer required of McCartney by rock critics. Now that means that that's a very difficult sentence. Art of consequence. It, the, it means that. I, I thought I knew what this meant yesterday, and I, I'm having trouble with art exactly. Of consequence. Stuff it appears to mark the point where art of consequence, which means the cons- you're thinking of the consequence of your art, was no longer required. It means that rock critics thought that that Paul didn't care didn't about, care about the consequence of whether it was art or not. He was just cruising through it. He was just cruising through it, and if they liked it. That was good. If you did, I'm not making art here. I'm just making music I enjoy. Blah, blah, blah. I'm not trying to make a big statement. And if you don't like it, too bad. In a way, that's true. Those silly love yes. songs. Um, <clears throat> uh, Tony Tyler. I know there's so, so many, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get these because uh, they're quite acknowledgeable about this album, even when they're being bitchy. Uh, Tony Tyler of the New Mystical Express acknowledged that the album was lightweight and lacking in intellectual posture. Very true. Very true. But added, with all the current heaviness and apocalyptic-type brain studs around, I, for one, am bloody pleased to discover a lightweight record that not only fails to alienate, but actually succeeds in impressing via good melodic structure, excellent playing, and fine production. I agree with that statement, too, in a way. I agree with all these statements that are talking about the music, whether negative or positive, because in a way they're all right. They're they're all making a, a valid point. This is a much more complicated yeah. record than you would think this is when you listen to it. I need to like points from some people who hated it and some people who liked yeah, it. Yeah, uh, but I like their points about the music. I don't like points like, this is the worst album I've heard from a big act in so long, and I wish you wouldn't. He sounds like he's chomping on a shoe. I mean, that's bullshit. But I mean, it's funny though, and you funny, can look at it. But what I'm talking about is when they're talking about the music, they're actually right on. Uh, the all music editor Stephen Irwine considers Red Rose Speedway to be McCartney's most disjointed album. True, and deliberately slight. I agree. I agree with all these little statements made. I really do. And I'll tell you what I feel about it in just a second. In a way, it's a snapshot album, which is important to a family, yet glazes the eyes of any outside observer. Also true, if you're like in the Paul McCartney circle, you're going, this is really good. But if you're not, you're going, this is kind of lightweight. I don't, I don't, it doesn't kind of concern me. If you work your way into the inner circle uh, and McCartney's little flourishes are intoxicating, not just the melodies, but the facile production and offhand invention. I agree with that too. Like if you if you kind of understand Paul's music and, and can are are adapted to his whimsy, so to speak, you'll get a lot of enjoyment out of this record. I, I agree with uh, I also agree with Beatles biographer Robert Rodriguez, who says it's a wildly uneven assortment of songs. Uh, I don't agree with his saying that the Abbey Road style medley at the end is it merely half finished? It's half assed. <laughs> but I like it. Uh, 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 so that's that's the other reviews. Now I'm going to review it. Uh, I'm going to take all that I've heard 
when I was a kid, I liked this record. Even as a kid, and this is the amazing thing. I don't think my opinion changes much than when I was an 11-year-old kid. And that, <laughs> and cool. I'm not patting myself that on the back. Cool. It's, just the, it's just the truth. And I've said this so many times on this where I've reviewed something that I listened to as an 11-year, 12-year-old kid or 13-year-old kid. And it's amazing how many times that when I listened to an album when I was 11, I knew what I liked about it the same as I do now when I listen or don't like about it the same. And I said, where did that come from? Because music to me, listening to it seriously, was only like six, seven, eight months old at the time to me. And I was like, wow. I thought at the album that it didn't showcase the band very well. It was supposed to be Paul McCartney and Wings, and yet it seemed to be very much a Paul McCartney solo yeah. album. Not just the songwriting, I'm not talking about that, but it just featured Paul and his types of songs, and the band didn't get to do much of anything on this album. Uh, I kind of thought that when I listened to it. Uh, it's a very interesting album. I consider Paul McCartney, and I don't consider many people this, and, and I've said this, everybody who listens to the show every week knows that I consider Paul McCartney an absolute genius. And I know people throw that word around way too much. I consider Bob Dylan a genius. I'm a genious. I, cons I consider Rob not. <laughs> I consider Rob an excellent bass player of the, the of the highest caliber, but he ain't no genius. The monkey's not uh, a genius, but he's closer to a genius than Rob <laughs> I consider Paul McCartney a genius. I consider, and this is tough to say because I still can hardly say it, but I, he's just passed, but I consider as a songwriter, Gordon Lightfoot, an absolute genius, which we will talk about when we do our memorial to Gordon. I consider Gordon Lightfoot an absolute songwriting genius. I consider Paul McCartney one of the greatest geniuses that we've ever had in the rock and roll era. He can play bass brilliantly. He can play, he can write songs like you wouldn't believe. He can take trifle and still make a trifle and yet make it intoxicating. He can play the drums like I play the drums, like a, like like we don't play drums, but it's still good. <laughs> you know what I mean? He uh, he plays piano as good as anybody in rock and roll has ever played piano. And he is he can make let me make a point of what I'm trying to talk about. On this record, I like little things on almost every song because he can make something out of even the slightest thing. And there's a part on the six minute song, Little Lamb Dragonfly, which is uh, two songs in one. It, it, it bookends with this little ditty, Little Lamb, which is at the beginning and end. And in the middle is quite a long song called Dragonfly. Now, like most of the songs on this album, actually all of the songs on this album, the, the, the lyrics aren't good and they're gibberish. But there's a part where he goes, and he sings amazing on this album, by the way. And he sings, um, and it touches me now to think about it, and it's so innocuous. But he sings, and it's so beautiful to me. He goes, la, 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 little lamb, la, la. The beauty of him singing just la, la. I'm, I'm being serious. No, because if you actually uh, just look at the words on paper, uh, 
they can be a little nonsensical at times. It is. <laughs> but uh, a lot of these words. And it's like yes. he's saying something that I don't know what he's saying. And the problem's with me. <laughs> yes. You know what? I didn't have lyrics when I heard this album for the first 40 years or so. I had the I had the thing and I didn't have lyrics when I bought the album and blah, blah, blah. So I didn't know what that... And I kind of knew that the songs didn't mean anything in a way. Even you know, though I parts of them do, but then he'll like uh, put another line in that uh, just, you know, fills up the rest of the verse. He will not put filler. things that not sounds... Filler. No, not filler. But he puts in words that may not mean sense but they rhythmically go very well or melodically go very well yes i wish i had the lyrics because i wanted to do that but i don't want to make this too long uh about him and he they him and john talked to george about this in the let it be documentary which was so important george was having trouble writing was it something he was having trouble writing something and john said to him just put in anything and then fix it later if you have to as long as it sounds good so you can move on yeah they were brilliant at this which means you put in something that doesn't mean anything but it stirs up something in you because it rhythmically and melodically is so fits with your voice and, and then the music. you start as a listener to attach a meaning yes to <laughs> exactly that's brilliance people that's saying it's good enough on its own the 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 most of the lyrics on this album now that i've i've i've, I've seen the lyrics in the last 10 years or so are pretty pretty lightweight. They are very lightweight. But the they way are. he sings it and the way he puts it in sometimes, you don't give a shit. He's got some some really good lines and some good parts. But it's uh it's almost like he Yeah, exactly. He moves on he doesn't care not, well, that that doesn't finishing, mean yeah. that that stanza may not it just sounds sounds nice. Those words sound nice when I sing them. I can help you out but I can't help you in. Yes. I'm trying to think, what's he talking about? Something bad that doesn't want to... But I couldn't put my finger on it, so... Yes, <laughs> exactly. Uh, a couple of examples. Rob gave you one. Uh, get on the right thing is basically about getting on the right thing, which... Um, who knows it's what the fuck not that not the means. wrong thing. And that's basically <laughs> the song. It's built around gibberish around that. But it's the performance, it's Paul's performance, it's kind of the band's performance, even though he really does put the band in the background, which is unfortunate. Uh, um, but it's like, get on the right thing. It's the emotion brought out on this four minutes of basically just saying get on the right thing. But you're totally into it, in a way, you're totally into it. Another example I had, by the way, the little ditty that this meant is nothing, single pigeon, I find to be... Which Paul probably thinks is nothing to me. Is like wow. I love that song. I just that think it's my amazing. Favorite. It's like what a minute and a half, two minutes. It's long? one minute and fifty-two seconds long. And I'm telling you, I couldn't do that if my life depended on it. I couldn't write a little ditty like that that was so innoxiously inoffensive and almost charming. like charming and charming. <laughs> What a great word, because it is. It's charming, and, and yet it's filler, and yet it's one of the things that you remember the most in the album when, you, when you're thinking of the song. It's called, Single Pigeon. Da, 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 and Linda singing that one as well is really uh, do, adds to it. I do. <laughs> it's, you think that's not brilliant? I actually think that's brilliant to write a 1 minute and 52 song throwaway that's not a throwaway <laughs> you may think it's a throwaway on the surface 
It's not because yeah. he can't make a throwaway. Do you understand what That's I'm saying, people? He's so brilliant that he can't do it. The lazy songwriting lady. Yes, he is in a way lazy because it's come so easy and natural. Words, for him, yeah. yes. That's the point. He did not become like he kind of heard this album, I think. And that's when you got the brilliance of Band on the Run, which is a five star masterpiece, as I said on one of our first shows when we reviewed it. And then he said, I got to get serious. People are crucifying me out there. I can't just make music that I like. I've got to be really serious. Make some make some really hardcore lyrics. This is an album where you're right. I'm kind of taking this. I like playing this music. La, la, la. Let's see what happens in the studio. And yet, he can't make bad music. You know what I mean? Like, completely bad music. You may not like a song on here. Like, let's say you don't like Little Lamb Dragonfly. But that one part where it goes, la, la, la. Just, it, it makes the whole song for me. It does. Um, I don't like Big Barn Bed. Uh, mostly because it's nonsensical. And again, it's kind of lazy in, in terms that he could make a story about it, but he didn't want to. But I love to go, all these little parts that he doesn't have to do, but a genius does because he feels like it should have a little catchy part. So how does he come up with, daddy, oh, I'll tell you how he comes up with it in his sleep. Wow. That's what I think. I'm, I'm here struggling to write songs that are nowhere near as good as his, even his lesser songs, and he's writing these songs like, like, okay, I got an album to do. Like, and I'm just saying, that's a genius. No, that seriously is a genius. When you're not on your A game, and yet in every song you you're yeah. just like, you're somewhere there. You're expressing something that moves people, and that's what I get from almost everything on the album. Uh, when the night says nothing. But it's so dramatic. Oh, the night. Oh, the night. Is that the one where he uh, does the, uh, the shouting vocals there? Yes. Yeah. And na, 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 na. Now that is, wow. is amazing. That's and yet awesome. he's not singing anything different than he did in the previous three minutes of the song. But he's he's making more emotion. So he's bringing emotion up in you. Yeah. And uh, also the vocal talent to, uh, to do that. And like, the vocal talent. That is a practiced voice. That is... Uh, that, I know some people are saying, oh, you're just a Paul McCartney fan. You're no, we're musicians. We know brilliance when we hear it. And brilliance does oh, not sometimes come in a seven and a half minute stairway to heaven. Sometimes it comes in 30 second spots in a song. Because even when you write a bad song, you can't completely write a bad song. <laughs> you can't when you have genius on your side. You know, I, I have to say, I, I love the medley, by the way. I'll just say that. I won't say anything about it because we're running out of time. Uh, but a funny story is I've always disliked Loop, the first Indian on the Moon, which is an instrumental. I liked it, that instrumental. You know why I disliked it? It's because every time on my A-track... <laughs> Oh, it was skipping. It went right in the through. middle. Oh, that's where it <laughs> And then it faded out and stopped. And then you'd have to wait till it went to the fourth track. And, and then it would yeah. fade back in. Uh, and it was like, you never really got to hear the song as it was. And I did that for years. I never got to hear it. But that shows you how great a bass player. It, it's a, it's a two-way sword. Because he even on an instrumental, he doesn't showcase the band. But he, I love songs that have rhythmic bass playing. I love that. I love rhythmic bass playing. That's why when we picked our bands, 
our imaginary bands that we would put together. Yeah. I picked as the bass player yeah. I've always wanted was Paul McCartney because Paul McCartney comes up with things on his own. They're rhythmic and sometimes they're really complicated. It, loop isn't complicated, but it's damn infectious. And uh, I liked it. So my overall thing, even though I'm getting all excited, this is a very spotty record. Linda said it perfect when she said uh, we were trying to find our way with this album. Yes. And it was very lightweight. And we were looking for a heavier sound and we didn't know how to get it. So it's all over the place. And it sounds like, as she said, a terribly unsure album. But there's a, still a lot of stuff in there. And I agree with that completely she says there are some beautiful songs and there is beautiful song beautiful ideas in the midst of some 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 kind of half uh thought of ideas but all these little parts kind of end up to an extremely enjoyable listen yes the album is spotty yes the album is lightweight just as some people have said and yes the album is sometimes lazy in its writing but you can't even when the artist tries deny brilliance <laughs> it comes out even when you try and deny even though i'm not saying that paul tried to deny it, he, he would never do that but even when he's giving not his hundred percent which you can tell he's not you can tell that he's he's enjoying what he's doing but he's not saying i have to make a statement here he's kind of saying i'm doing this for fun if i got if i got I, silly lyrics that's fine. i view this as just as a stepping stone for wings the wildlife was where they started and they uh had to, you know, kind of cut their teeth and learn to play together. And it takes a while for bands to learn to play together well. And this was the next logical step on their uh, their journey. And much tighter than Wildlife. Yes, band. much tighter. Uh, better parts. I really compare this a lot to Band on the Run. It's just missing the quality that Band on the Run exactly. had. Exactly. It has all the elements in place, kind of. It just, it's... It's They're still experimenting. Stone. They are still learning and if, experimenting. If Wildlife was really the formation of the band, mm. this album is the next step up. They're all building to Band on the Run. Yeah. But it, you have to build. I, I, yeah. I feel like this album had to be there. Yeah. Oh, I agree 100% with that statement. And I will say the first time I listened to it, uh, about uh, seven or eight songs through, my first commenter was, this is a collection of songs. It's not like an album. Like, yes, I knew it was. That's what I thought when I was eleven years old. Yeah. I swear to God, Rob, when I was eleven, I thought this is not really a cohesive album, but it is a nice collection of songs. After I wrote that, then I started reading up uh, some of the history of the album and realized they'd cut it down to a double to a single album, and a bunch of the songs got cut out. Mm -hmm. So this I also view as not an accurate representation of what they were trying to do at the time. Exactly. This uh, a bit of the fault of this album is. EMI. <laughs> uh, now, we can't deny that, you know, record companies, they're, they're kind of necessary for people to produce records and sell them. But that doesn't mean they always make good decisions. And sometimes, sometimes they make atrocious decisions. They do. And they got a guy like Paul McCartney and they're screwing him around like that. Okay. I, and I, I know now, now. I've lost a great deal of respect. Now I know. Company. I didn't actually know this until this album was re-released in 2018. And I'm a big Beatles fan, as everybody knows. I'm a huge Beatles fan and solo Beatles. I did not know this was supposed to be a double album until five years ago. And 
now I understand, just like you said, now I understand why this sounded just like a collection of songs because it's all cut up now. It's supposed to be two records. Now it's all cut up. Yeah. Um, you know what? I, I, I don't want to... Uh, that is the only overt fault I, I kind of really found with the album. Other than that, the, um, yeah, they, they chose uh, the, the, some of the lighter songs and uh, omitted some of the heavier songs. Yes. Um, so that kind of gives it a bit of the lightweight. Uh, that's why it sounds lightweight. Yeah. There are some very heavy rockers that were left off the album. And that is exactly why the band said this is not a good representation of the band because it's very Paul, you know, and not the band. It's very lightweight. It's very Paul solo. And I think, you know, that's too bad because I would have liked to have heard uh, a band type of album and it uh, was more of a Paul solo album and very choppy. But now I know why it's choppy. <laughs> it's very unsure. Paul is still finding his voice even three years after leaving the Beatles. But they have all of those good parts in it. Uh... I'll tell you, uh, <laughs> I'll talk about the medley really quick. People put down the medley, but I'm telling you, because people say, oh, they're... like I said, somebody said half-ass songs. Um, I'd kill to write a two-minute 50 song called Lazy Dynamite. I love that song. Oh, Lazy Dynamite. And he sings that for like five times. But for some reason, because Paul McCartney does it. He can get away with Why Don't We Do It He can get away with singing. <laughs> yes. He can get away with singing Lazy Dynamite five times in a row. And each time he sings it. It stirs up more emotions in you. And I don't know why. It is the brilliance of the man. He can oh, do stuff that most dynamite. of the rest of us just can't do. I know. Oh, is it dynamite. Now that seems inconsequential, doesn't it? It's not. It may be something that he just does uh, without even thinking to him, to me. That's close to brilliance. When you just change it a little bit and go, oh, is it dynamite. Hide when you close out the light. Now, all of a sudden, because of his use of sound with the voice and the music, you're involved and you don't even care what it's about. Yeah, I mean, um, um, Dragonfly, Little Lamb, I thought those uh, were pet names for a girlfriend. Yeah. You know, I still <laughs> That's kind what of, my mind. I uh, still kind of do. To. I used to think that this was actually about a little lamb and dragonfly, and it wasn't until. 50, almost 50 years later, this week, when yeah, I, see, I, I wasn't was, sure that I kind of think that, no, for, seriously, for 50, almost 50 years, I was thinking this song is literally about a little, dragon because he's so big on animals, right, on the farm. But then I'm thinking, you know, because he does this so often in this album, is, is start an album by talking about a single pigeon. And then I'm thinking, is that really about a pigeon? It sounds like a relationship. And then I'm thinking, maybe these are girls' names in Little Lamb Dragon. And then it makes it more emotional instead of thinking about animals, right? And uh, we don't know. But no, but that's the part of the, 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 those uh, lines that um, have words that don't make sense. The way he sings them, your ear attaches a meaning to them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You attach your meaning to them. Um, and therefore, they do make sense, even though they don't make sense. Does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just the power of having, and I just want to say this one more time, so much brilliance that you make even the slightest music at times sound amazing. And that, to me, is the definition of brilliance, is when you can take the ordinary and the half-assed and make it sound like 
you would want to write that, even though you know that it's just Paul kind of like only for 30 seconds being brilliant. But God, I would kill for that 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, that's a hardcore brilliance that's coming through yes. there. But like, that's really... Or, or to have one He's of so my... effortless the, with it. I know, it pisses me <laughs> off. And that's why I say when I hear a song that's supposed to be as slight and as inoffensive as Single Pigeon being one of the songs in the whole world that I wish I had wrote. <laughs> and anybody else would, would might say, why would you want... Because, don't you understand? He goes to the piano, he writes the song, it's a minute and 52 seconds long, and it's as catchy as hell, and then he moves on. Don't you understand the brilliance of that? <laughs> don't you? Like, that could take me... I don't know how long to write something that catchy. And yet, it, it's just a throwaway. Yeah, I think it's in the morning, got that one done. Let's put that on the album. Okay. The next thing. So when people say, like like we were talking about, um, yes, it is lightweight, but it's brilliant lightweight at times. And and it's, as you say, it's a stepping stone to bigger things. But you have to, like, some of the criticisms were extremely harsh because... I think they were looking at the big picture instead of looking at all these little parts in every song uh, or the nonsense lyrics and how they're sung. And that's why this is so complicated because you have to hear this record intently on every second because listen for that part in The Lamb Dragonfly when he sings la 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 because it's, it's, it's almost euphoric and yet it's so throwaway. And that's brilliance. It's not when you make brilliance. It's when you make nothing sound like brilliance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I got to struggle to find words that make sense. Well, I'm going about this all wrong. <laughs> so I'm still, uh, and I would have at the time, and I haven't changed 50 years later, I still give this just three stars because as an album, it's spotty and lightweight, but there's brilliance all over it. That's what I'm saying. I liked it enough for three and a half stars. I view a lot of the faults or the biggest faults of the album as not being from the band or with the band or with the writing. It's with the record company. Okay. I agree with that. And uh, oh, there's just so many deep parts on it. I know. This is such an interesting, <laughs> fascinating album. If you can get past the kind Great of like Great music, but uh, an okay album. <laughs> yes, it is. You're right. If I had to put it in, in one sentence, that's what I would say. Great music, but okay album. Yeah. Yeah. Um, see, we got a long show. I said it. I even took out a whole huge segment. If I had that huge segment on here, we would literally be talking an hour and 35 minute show. Well, worse yet, we <laughs> might not say all we had to say about the album. <laughs> I know, my God, which we never want to do. Never want to do. Yeah, it's, it's about the album. I and mean, You go home forgetting something you said about the album, you have to kick yourself. Right in the, right in the canoids. Yeah. We have to go because you know what? It's late. We're, it's very late here, actually. <laughs> it's very late. We, we have a never... Very late start. It, it a very late start tonight for us. And But we had a really good show. We really enjoyed this. I almost didn't want to do the show tonight. Oh, we almost didn't. Because we were outside we, waiting uh, for 10 minutes yeah. trying to get into the building. And, we almost uh, ditched the show tonight and said we were going to do it some other time. And I'm glad we did it. Uh, thanks to Rob, because sometimes when I'm feeling tired and I had a really bad day, you'll go, let's just do the show. When you get into it, you'll get into it. And that's exactly <laughs> what happened. Yeah. <laughs> always wrong. You, you start talking, you get passionate. <laughs> so next week, we will be reviewing another album by an ex-Beatle from 1973. Which one? 
Not even we know. So how maybe, are you supposed to know? Maybe George Martin. <laughs> maybe it's a fifth Beatle record. Um, so until then, everybody, uh, take care and stay safe. Just right or wrong. Have you noticed? Have you noticed, Jim, that that your dick's getting a little green?